This episode is brought to you by Pronamel. Not all our favorite foods and drinks are BFFs with our teeth. Salad dressing, seltzers, and fruits can be enamel enemies. So if you eat or drink those things regularly, your enamel could be at risk. And once it's gone, it's gone. Pronamel Intensive Enamel Repair penetrates deep into the enamel surface, locking in vital minerals to repair acid-weakened enamel. And with new Pronamel Repair mouthwash, you can enhance that repair beyond just brushing. Pronamel is the number one dentist-recommended brand for acid erosion, so buy Pronamel Repair anywhere you buy toothpaste or mouthwash. Visit Pronamel.com. Hello and welcome to Savor, a production of iHeartRadio. I'm Annie Reese. And I'm Lauren Vogelbaum. And today we have an episode for you about Zinfandel. Yes. <laughs> yes. And it is a fun one. It's a dense one. Uh, oh, yeah. Oh, lots of DNA <laughs> genetic analysis involved. <laughs> that's that's always fun. <laughs> yeah. Historical twists and turns. Um, mm-hmm. uh, and as always with our alcohol episodes, drink responsibly. Yes, 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 yes. Um, and we should say right off the bat with this one, this is a, a sponsored episode. Yes, entirely sponsored by the wine brand Saldo, um, who were kind enough to send us a few of their wares to sample. And uh, they're heckin' delicious. Um, and you are going to hear a lot of ads from them for throughout this episode. Yes, you are. Some Some quizzes? Trivia? Uh (laughs) Always fun. Uh, Yeah, yeah. They were delicious. Um, And it was nice to be researching this and kind of have, like, now now that I know all of the history, I'm even more appreciative. (laughs) Oh, yeah. And I'm really, I'm really excited to to get into some different Zinfandel, like, clonal varieties and see what some of the differences are in the ways that winemakers are using this grape. Um, It is... It is just wonderfully nerdy. Um, this yeah. one gets this one goes deep. It does. <laughs> it does. And I have a whole spiel about it later, but oh my gosh. Yeah, yes. yeah. And and I and I and I will say, like, like, look, like, like Loki, they are paying us to say this, but but really, like, like they seem like such a great brand to have sponsored this episode because they seem like really good nerds too. Mm. And so that's just just exciting to be working with with cool people. Yeah, it's nice when it, it meshes in that way. Um, and I will say, I love a good Zinfandel, but it's definitely one that I've long misunderstood and have only fairly recently gotten into. So I think that uh, I'm happy to be doing this one because I just had so many misunderstandings about yeah. what a Zinfandel was. And we're going to talk about some reasons why that might be in the history section. But <laughs> I, it's just been really nice because I'm like, oh, I didn't know a Zinfandel could be this. Because yeah. I just so long had the wrong, or not even wrong, but like I just didn't have a complete context of what Zimdels were. Yeah, yeah. I, I had sort of the, the the wrong impression of the grape for a long time. And mm-hmm. huh, learning about stuff is cool. Huzzah! It is. And people are fans. Yes. <laughs> oh my goodness, yes. Uh, also National Zinfandel Day is uh, the third Wednesday of every November. So that's coming up. We're kind of on on target for that one. <laughs> sure, yeah. Yes, and you can see our past wine episodes. There have been many, uh, including the one we did on the French wine blight, which we're not going to talk too much about in this one, but is always 
kind of hanging over these wine mm-hmm. episodes. Um, and our New Orleans drinks episode for a brief mention. I'm going to talk about that more in the history bit as well. But we did talk about why some of those misunderstandings of Zinfandel, where they came from, perhaps. And it's kind of interesting. Right. Um, yeah. For more on that, you can also see our boxed wine episode for a short bit about white Zinfandel, which I think definitely brings us to our question. I agree. Uh, <laughs> Zinfandel. What is it? Well, uh, Zinfandel is the name of a wine grape and also the name of a wine produced from those grapes. And maybe a little bit of other grapes in there, too, but mostly Zinfandel. Um, it's a deep red grape, uh, so red its skin is almost black, and will generally be used to produce a deep red wine that's often spicy and, and warming, um, but also fruity and, and bright. It's like a... It's like sidling up to a warm fire on a crisp fall afternoon. Which is one of my very favorite things. <laughs> right? <laughs> right? Oh, it can be a lot of things, though. Um, mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, wine grapes, and most other grapes for that matter, um, are all part of the species Vitus vinifera. Uh, Zinfandel is a variety of wine grape that has evolved and been selected for over time. Uh, The plant is a woody vine that will grow for like 100 plus years if you take care of it, getting gnarlier um, all the while. I saw one article call it like Tim Burtonier. Yeah, yeah. Um, And they grow these uh, big five-lobed leaves. Every spring, they'll flower with uh, big clusters of super tiny, frankly unimpressive blooms um, that, if pollinated, each of those flowers can develop into a single grape. The clusters are on the, like, the medium to large side, uh, often winged um, with little extra clusters of grapes, and pretty compact. Um, the grapes themselves are on the large side for wine grapes and have thin skin that starts out green and will ripen to, yes, this deep blue-black. The grapes ripen relatively early in the wine harvesting season and can be used to make right, just a bunch of different types of wine. Um, you can harvest on the early side uh, to produce what's called white Zinfandel, which is often uh, blush-colored, or you can harvest it later. I'd, I've seen a bunch of different produ- production methods. I'm not telling you what to do anyway. Um, uh, you can harvest when they're mature to produce a more typical Zinfandel, uh, red and bold, or you can wait until later in the season when the grapes are overripe or even raisiny and use that to create a strong dessert wine similar to a ruby port. There are lots of recognized clones of Zinfandel. Um, clones in wine refer to like a recognized sub-variety that growers have identified as having certain traits and that they'll take cuttings of to, to graft to other rootstocks in order to produce a genetic clone of the original cutting. Nothing to do with like clone wars. None of that. It's <laughs> what? just a... Sorry. <laughs> oh, no. Now I've got a Star Wars wine-based... <laughs> Oh, my gosh. Parody that I'm planning. Okay. All right. Perfect. Perfect. That certainly was not my intention. (laughs) You know how to get me pretty easily, Vogelbaum. (laughs) Uh, um, 
cloning uh, grape grapevines is like easier and more reliable than growing wine grapes from seed. It takes seeds a few years to grow vines of sufficient um, size and hardiness to to get a really good crop of grapes. Um, and clones are generally identified by number, um, either by like the number in which they were um, they were researched and published about, or just like any number that somebody wanted to apply to them. Going back to Star Wars, I think that, oh, maybe it was like a Petite Syrah that's like a 777 <laughs> and that that's a reference to Attack of the Clones. Anyway. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> okay. Nerd, that's nerd very stuff. exciting. Yes. Nerd stuff. <laughs> um, I don't have a note on that. I'm, I'm saying it from memory and probably misquoting. But but at any rate, um, yes. Uh, of course, the, the characteristics of any finished wine depend on a lot of different factors. Um, the exact uh, uh, microclimate that it was grown in and the growing season that it endured um, and the way that the plant was pruned and the way that it was harvested and when it was harvested and how it was treated after harvest and how it was treated during the bottling and fermentation process, all of this different stuff. But that being said, <laughs> um, there are a few, like, tendencies of the Zinfandel grape. Uh, uh, first, due to the shape of those clusters, the grapes tend to ripen unevenly in, in any given cluster, um, meaning that when you take the bunch from the vine, there's going to be some that are underripe, some that are perfect, and some that are overripe. And that means that um, any given Zinfandel usually has like a, a a broader breadth of of distinct flavors in there. Like a lot of young wines taste young, a lot of older wines taste old, but this one like has a little bit of everything. Mm -hmm. Yeah, mm -hmm. um, they tend to be a bit high in alcohol, um, and the burn from that can be pretty forward, or it can be produced to um, to taste more fruit forward, one or the other, um, and. The general flavors include um, like red berries and or cherries, uh, jam, a little bit of smoke, and uh, spices like black pepper. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. In the United States, a wine that is labeled Zinfandel uh, may be up to 25% content from other grapes. Um, and uh, speaking of uh, things that you might see on wine labels, if you've heard of Old Vine Zinfandel, that is mostly a marketing term um, because it's not like a regulated status here in the U.S., but generally um, old vine refers to a wine made from grapes grown on vines that are old enough to have like peaked and then plateaued in terms of fruit production, which happens maybe about like 50 years into the vine's lifespan. And the fruit from old vines is sometimes prized because um, those vines, like, aren't spreading their resources across so many grapes anymore as they were when their their grape production peaked. Um, so the flavor in the grapes can be more concentrated. Yes. It's funny you say that. I'm glad you say that because, again, I was kind of a novice in the Zinfandel world and I saw this old vine Zinfandel and I was like... Why is why have I never heard of this before? Whoa. <laughs> what on earth does that mean? Are these I other bet. vines infants? What's exactly. happening? <laughs> exactly. Learning something new every day. Um, well, <laughs> what about the nutrition? No, oh, drink responsibly. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, we do have some numbers for you, and I want to mm -hmm. start with this because okay. 
There's a symposium, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> I love I love all of the puns around Zinfandel. There's so yes. many of them. Um, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, but right from from what I can tell, the symposium is part of the uh, annual Passarobles Zinfandel weekend every March. Oh my gosh, listeners! Again, please write in, <laughs> let us know. <laughs> Always. Yes. Uh, as of 2012, there were 50,000 acres planted with Zinfandel grapes in California. Mm-hmm. And these range across some 40 counties there, which lie in all five of California's like climatic wine growing regions, which is so cool. Yeah. Um, as of 2017, Zinfandel was the fourth leading wine grape when it came to acreage in California. Mm-hmm. And 90% of the world's Zinfandel is grown in California. Um, Every year, around 300,000 tons of Zinfandel grapes are crushed there. And that's like on a bad year. Uh, Since 1995, 300,000 tons has been on the low end of crushage. Um, Tons crushed more than doubled in the decade from 1985 to 1995. Is crushage a, a Lauren Vogelbaum original? Is that a real term? <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, I it might be. It might be a me thing, or I might have read it somewhere. You never okay. really know with vocabulary. It- <laughs> it's true. Well, I like it nonetheless. Great. Uh, and I I do this association with Zinfandel and California <laughs> is incredibly strong, and people are very passionate about it. Um, and that means that we have a lot in the history section for you. We do. Um, but first we've got a quick break for a word from our sponsor. This episode is brought to you by Pronamel. Not all our favorite foods and drinks are BFFs with our teeth. Salad dressing, seltzers, and fruits can be enamel enemies. So if you eat or drink those things regularly, your enamel could be at risk. And once it's gone, it's gone. Pronamel Intensive Enamel Repair penetrates deep into the enamel surface, locking in vital minerals to repair acid-weakened enamel. And with new Pronamel Repair mouthwash, you can enhance that repair beyond just brushing. Pronamel is the number one dentist-recommended brand for acid erosion, so buy Pronamel Repair anywhere you buy toothpaste or mouthwash. Visit Pronamel.com. And we're back. Thank you, sponsor. Yes, thank you. Okay, so I think we've said it several times, but grapes, separate episode. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. We do not have time to do the history of grapes today. <laughs> not today. And I think we're going to have to split that one up uh, yeah. in multiple episodes. Yeah. Yes. Also... Just a shout out to UC Davis out of California. Thank you. Um, you overwhelmed me <laughs> with your information, but I appreciate it. I respect it. And thank you. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. They have published a bunch of really, really, really thorough information about the history of Zinfandel. And right, it's wonderful, but also like academic. And if you're, a layman like we are, I was like, oh, no. <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> it was like every other paragraph I was like, well, 
I don't know that I have time to go into the history of whatever this term is that they're just using as if I should know what it is. <laughs> right. Yeah. Uh-huh. Which is no no slight to them because they, no, no. It, was, it was for people who are in that industry, in the industry and sure. have been forever. So, like, honestly, just thank you. But I was, like, reading it, getting increasingly, like, that, like, sweat, the kind of sweat emoji. Yeah. Uh-huh. was getting bigger oh. and bigger. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> But I did love it because you could feel the passion in it. You could feel that people just care about this so much. Yeah. Um, but all right, let's dive into all of this information we have about the Zinfandel. Sure. Um, all right. So the ancestors of the Zinfandel grape trace back to 6000 BC, but our modern understanding of this grape or our more modern history of them is fairly recent. Um, by the 19th century, grape growers were producing a grape called the Zimbandel. Or a word close to that in a couple different places. But yes, continue. Yes. Um, because of the wine's current close association with California, a lot of research, yes, has been done into how the grape made its way into that state. But we still aren't entirely sure of the details. And I say we I didn't really have much to do with the research, but no. you know, our general understanding <laughs> of we. Um, <laughs> but uh-huh. here is what we do know or suspect. The Zinfandel grape was probably being grown for wine in California by the 1850s. Um, there is no record of a grape by that name being grown in Europe at the time. And the history of the name itself, yeah, it's caused a lot of confusion and consternation. It has historically been spelled all kinds of ways. It's been called all kinds of things, uh, which we're going to talk about more in a second. Mm-hmm. Um, and obviously, yeah, that that causes some confusion when you're trying to look into the history of something. Mm-hmm. Researchers think the most logical explanation for how the grape got to California has to do with an amateur horticulturalist uh, named George Gibbs, who might have gotten the grapes and or vines from Vienna's imperial nursery and taken them with him or got them shipped maybe to him uh, to the U.S. in the 1820s. And records do show that by the 1820s and 30s, Zinfandel was being grown as a table grape in hothouses on the east coast of the United States. In William Robert Prince's 1830 work, A Treatise on the Vine, he includes what he called Black Zinfandel of Hungary. And Hungary here was probably referring to what is now modern-day Croatia. In his list of grapes recently introduced to the U.S. from other countries. Uh, yeah, important to note here that uh, that the Austrian Empire encompassed uh, what's now also uh, uh, Hungary and Croatia. Sure. Yes. And this theory gained some traction somewhat recently after a genetic discovery. We promised genetic discoveries yeah! in DNA. <laughs> yes. Uh, so... Some of the confusion around Zinfandel also stems from the fact that two other clonal varieties have evolved in two other countries over time, Italy and Croatia, that we know of. Um, A DNA analysis published in 2003 revealed that the California Zinfandel, the Italian Primitivo, and the Croatian Tribidrag, and I hope I didn't butcher that, um, all have the same DNA profile. And notably, both the Italian and Croatian name for this grape likely refers to, like, early ripening. Mm -hmm. Um, But that's 
the etymology of this is so complicated, so we can't go too deep into it. Yeah, yeah. Oof. Uh, yes, what is now Croatia was a part of the Austrian Empire at the time. So when Gibbs would have been collecting this grape to transport it to America, he very likely would have gotten it from what is now Croatia. Yeah. And some of what kickstarted this whole interest in doing the genetic analysis in the first place was the discovery of ancient Zinfandel vines in Croatia, which we're also going to talk about more in a yes. little bit. Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Zinfandel probably arrived with those traveling to California in the 1850s for the California Gold Rush. Shipping records show that a lot of Zinfandel was sent to the state in the 50s, 1850s. But again, this is sort of complicated because so many different names were used. Mm-hmm. Um, and for a while, it was pretty much accepted that Colonel Augustine Harasti introduced Zinfandel to California after returning from Europe in 1861, and this was a trip he went on specifically to investigate European wine cultivars. But upon doing some digging, researchers didn't find Zinfandel listed as one of the varieties he returned with. And on top of that, another viticulturist from the time wrote that the grape was present in California much earlier than that. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's very fun to see all these researchers like, no, no, no. I've looked into this. <laughs> it's it's really great, honestly. Yeah. <laughs> um, whatever the case, by the 1860s, Sonoma and Napa in California had significant vineyards of Zinfandel, and the grape was making a name for itself in wine, especially in that state. Uh, the success of the grape opened the door for other non-French wine grapes in that region, too, because at the time, everybody was trying to, like, copy what French wine was doing. hmm but because this one was successful and it wasn't really like French wine, it was like, oh, well, we could try other things, too. Maybe sure. other things could work as well. As early as 1879, professionals of all types were writing about the grape um, and how it was suited for California, which was a big deal for the burgeoning wine industry there. Um a lot of people were looking into how they could compete on the world stage uh, in terms of California, competing on this wine world stage, and specifically going toe-to-toe with France. Um, organizations to evaluate wine in California were created. Experiments were done. Papers were written. A paper written after one of these experiments suggested that wines made of a single variety of Zinfandel grape were inferior and that blends were recommended. And all these things, like I'm condensing so much because again, there <laughs> is so, so much. Um, but there's like a whole paper you can read about just this one experiment. <laughs> it's fascinating. It really honestly is. So if you have any interest, recommend. Mm-hmm. Um by 1884, Zinfandel accounted for an estimated half of wine grape plantings in California. And it was so well known there that someone studying the grape at the time wrote, the variety is too well known in California to require any remarks on its general character. <laughs> Can you imagine <laughs> if we did an episode that that's just what we said? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's too well known. I don't have to say anything else. Uh, <laughs> By 1887, these grapes were going for about $14 to $16 per ton, and that's about half of what well-known and respected French grapes were going for. So it was, like, on the rise, I guess. Sure. Um, 
Charles Wetmore, sometimes called the father of the California wine industry, once wrote, Although Hungarian, Zinfandel is more known now in America than in Europe, and it is the beginning of a new type of which we may be proud. Uh, he also wrote in 1884 that it should be classified as a white wine grape. Foreshadowing. Yes. Ooh. <laughs> yes. yes. Um, its popularity and its known hardiness in California ensured that it was one of the first grapes regrafted onto new rootstock when the French wine blight did hit that state. Yes, and I guess speaking of, um, I don't know, maybe not. But anyway, prohibition was obviously not good for Zinfandel in the United States and almost led to it completely going extinct. Um, it didn't really start to recover in the U.S. until the 1970s. Yeah. Um, uh, wine in general took a took a huge hit during Prohibition, um, perhaps obviously. Zinfandel seems to have survived specifically because it is so well-suited to California climate that homebrewers could make decent jug wine from it, like without access to the usual winemaking equipment. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and kind of stepping back a bit, there's a lot of threads in this story, but uh, the University of California Viticultural Department chair named the Zinfandel the most planted and most well-known grape in California in 1929. And he recommended that vineyards in Northern California plant it as well. And again, it was the subject of just so many academic papers and recommendations about how to get the most money given the acreage required to grow this grape. There's just mm -hmm. so many things like, here's the best way to go about it. Yeah. Um, and clonal research uh, really took off in the 1970s. But okay, let's look at Italy's Primitivo grape for a second. Yeah. Okay. So around the 1860s, or somewhere in there, somewhere around the same time, the Zinfandel grape was really taking hold of California's wine industry. Um, Italy was using a grape called Primitivo, grown in a similar climate as California, uh, at first largely to fortify red wine. So it was sort of a supplementary grape almost. Uh -huh. um, just as people have tried to get to the bottom of how this grape ended up in California, the same is true for Italy. Some speculate that it arrived from Croatia via the Adriatic Sea in the 18th century, though I did see one date that was far earlier than that. Hmm. Um, one of the reasons this is a popular theory is that legend has it the grape was originally named after the Croatian port it arrived from in Italy. Again, the etymology of this one is very complicated, but yeah. that is one theory. theory. Yeah. <laughs> the first known instance of this grape in the written record is from 1799 in Italy. Uh, there's kind of a humorous story, or I found it humorous, of... A USDA plant pathologist, Dr. Austin Gokin, visiting Italy in the 1960s, tasting some wine made with the Primitivo grape and thinking to himself, huh, tastes like Zinfandel. Huh. Uh, he took some samples of the grape back to the U.S., planted them next to Zinfandel, and a 1994 genetic analysis, yes, more DNA stuff, huh. <laughs> confirmed what he suspected. They shared a DNA profile. Um, of note, there are varietal differences, but very, very, very similar. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, clonal differences, that is, right? They're, they're the same variety, 
They just right. right. They are genetically the same thing. Um, but mm. uh, but yeah, uh, clonal varieties can have a little bit of uh, of uh, variance in there. Sure, in how yes. they present. Which again, if you want to know more about, UC Davis has got your back. They had a whole breakdown of it. <laughs> they really do. They really yeah, they do. do. <laughs> huh. um, and there has been a lot of back and forth about labeling around Zinfandel and Primitivo over the years. In 1985, the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms declared that the names uh, could not be used interchangeably on labels. Uh However, when presented with DNA evidence, which I love, um, (laughs) first in the 90s and then in the early 2000s, they revised their decision. In 1999, they followed the EU's example and ruled that the names could be used synonymously. Um, and then they had, you know, their call for comments. What are your thoughts about this decision, you know? Uh-huh. Oh, and people had comments. <laughs> they had comments. Um, mostly Californians and others in the American Zinfandel business in one way or another uh, worried that this would adversely impact the California wine industry, mostly because of confusion, Uh or that's that's what they said that they thought it would confuse people. Sure. Um, so taking this into account, the ruling was postponed indefinitely, and as of 2018, the names cannot be used interchangeably in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Well, if anyone has further information, <laughs> please let us yeah. know. Yeah. Oh, so mm-hmm. cool. It is. And speaking of cool, meanwhile. <laughs> huh. Interest in the grapes' history in Croatia really took off in the 1990s, though plenty had been looking into it before then. Um, Researchers at the University of Zagreb, Croatia, joined forces with a cohort in California to dig into the grapes' potential Croatian roots. The country has a long wine history that goes back to at least 2200 BCE. Um, the Croatian scientist sent sample grapes and vines to California for DNA testing, eventually leading to the genetic analysis that confirmed ancient vines in Croatia matched the DNA profile of California's Zinfandel. Further research revealed that two grapes with different names in Croatia were also the same, so that leads uh, that also was causing some confusion. <laughs> um, yeah. But... There's a lot written up about this, and it's really, really cool. And it kind of took a while of sending grapes back and forth and doing these tests before they arrived at this conclusion. So yeah, I that, really enjoyed it. Yeah, that, that all all three of these of these these Croatian, Italian, and Californian grapes are the heckin' same grape. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, but just different clonal varieties. Mm-hmm. Um, and there has been, there have been other historical notes that have gotten attached to all of this. Um, uh, for example, one of these Croatian, uh, varieties was listed on this Austrian farming map from 1863 that was laying out different wine grapes grown around the region, um, which, right, strengthens the hypothesis that this grape was common there and already to be transported to the U.S., um, by at least that time, that time or earlier. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. So while all of this, and I'm making a big gesture with my oh, arms yeah. to encompass <laughs> all of we've, what we've been talking about, uh, was going on in the U.S. and abroad, another major shift in our understanding of Zinfandel occurred, the introduction of white Zinfandel. Yes. 
Yes. Oh, oh my. Okay, so all of this research was going on around Zinfandel in the 70s that indirectly catapulted the cousin of Zinfandel, White Zinfandel, to fame in the 80s and 90s. And yes, our interviewee in that New Orleans episode we mentioned at the top, Chris Warner, shared his opinion that Sutter Holmes' White Zinfandel was sort of a gateway wine for a lot of people in the United States. Sure, yeah. Mm-hmm. It was a very funny tidbit I like to So according to some sources, Sutter Holmes' White Zinfandel was an accident that they created in 1972. The company's winemaker allegedly used runoff from their Zinfandel wines to make White Zinfandel. And for whatever reason, one time the wine didn't fully ferment and it resulted in a low-alcohol, sugary wine. As discussed, the dark times, in our opinion, I guess, you could fight with (laughs) us about that, of the sugary 80s meant -hmm. that the product was very happily embraced. Oh, yeah. And it skyrocketed to popularity. However, um, the first known instance of a blush wine Zinfandel dates back to 1869. So I guess this is probably when it just really took hold right the public yeah this was the modern coming mm-hmm. of of the blush zinfandel yes and it did paint the public perception of zinfandels as a swedish blush low alcohol wine kind of basic was the vibe i sure. got yeah and so the reputation was soured and when i was saying at the beginning that i didn't understand i thought zinfandel was this sure white zinfandel. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah for a long time, yeah, um, and it really gained this this perception of being um, a uh, low cost and low quality wine. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And this is why other grapes like Merlot and Cabernet sort of took over for red wine production in California in the '90s and early 2000s. Yes, um, but there were still people in California that were passionate about looking into Zinfandel. Uh, And a lot of research went into varietals in California in the Uh 90s. Uh You can, yes, find exhaustive detail if you want. (laughs) Uh (laughs) Yeah, um, very much in brief. Um, The the 90s is when the American trade group Zinfandel Advocates and Producers formed in 92, to be exact. And uh, every year to this day, they sponsor a Zinfandel-centric wine and food festival in January called Zin X. And in 1995, they started up a project with UC Davis called the Heritage Vineyard Project. Um, Its purpose uh, being to take cuttings from old vines in Vindel around California and select strong ones um, to propagate and make available to growers. Um, they say it's currently like 20 years in, into a 100-year effort to preserve the variety and let it thrive um, and replace old vines that won't last forever. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and all of this is part of what we've talked about before of California's and America's at large wine industry looking for some recognition, um, looking for some respect and financial success, of course. Sure, yeah. Um, In a world that for, yeah, I mean, yes. In a world that for so long has valued European wine above all. Like that's that's the best. That's what you want. And this is something that, that did see a real shift 
in the 2000s. It was a real perspective shift Yeah, in the 2000s of what California wine, American wine could be and that it could compete. Um, but it's always, it's been there. People have been working in it. People are passionate about it. I just don't want to, I can't stress enough that people love this and they've been <laughs> yeah. looking into it and they've been working at it. And I don't want to erase all the stuff they've been doing. Because right now, yeah, we're seeing a resurgence of it. But people have been in this. <laughs> oh, yeah. Forever. Forever. Yes. Since since those first, like, gold rush vines arrived in California, people have been really deep into it. And mm-hmm. that's beautiful. It is. It is. And we appreciate it personally (laughs) oh yeah on a podcast researcher level but also on a wine drinker level yeah oh both yeah sure absolutely (laughs) so this was a it was a really delightful one to look into um and there's so many offshoots we could further research but uh, oh yeah many potential future episodes or mm -hmm. little side quests or whatever it is that it is yeah yes yes but in the meantime I think that's what we have to say about Zinfandel for now. It is. Uh, We do have some listener mail for you, though. Uh, But first, we've got one more quick break for a word from our sponsor. This episode is brought to you by Pronamel. Not all our favorite foods and drinks are BFFs with our teeth. Salad dressings, seltzers, and fruits can be enamel enemies. So if you eat or drink those things regularly, your enamel could be at risk. And once it's gone, it's gone. Pronamel Intensive Enamel Repair penetrates deep into the enamel surface, locking in vital minerals to repair acid-weakened enamel. And with new Pronamel Repair mouthwash, you can enhance that repair beyond just brushing. Pronamel is the number one dentist-recommended brand for acid erosion, so buy Pronamel Repair anywhere you buy toothpaste or mouthwash. Visit Pronamel.com. And we're back. Thank you, sponsor. Yes, thank you. And we're back with the <laughs> Sitting next to the fire. Yeah. And it's so cold, which it is quite cold. <laughs> oh, yeah. We just had the weather turn, like, this morning. Yes. And, and I'm like, recently. oh, I should have brought my plants in. Heck, okay. That's right. I've been meaning to ask you about your plants, which I know is a weird thing to say, but I do worry about your plants. <laughs> <laughs> um, they're currently hanging out at my neighbor's house um, uh, where I moved. So I'm I'm not in like my permanent new house yet. Uh, I'm staying in an Airbnb for a couple months, which is really exciting. Uh, <laughs> but I moved them to a neighbor's house before I moved in here, and that is where they are. So I guess I have to go make several trips across the street after I do this recording. <laughs> Yes. Let us know how they are. Tell them hi. Oh, oh, I will. I haven't I haven't seen him in like two weeks. I don't even know. Oh. I don't even know. Oh no. Well, you've got to keep us updated then. <laughs> <laughs> I really do. I was like, I wonder how her avocado trees. Oh, <laughs> uh, they've been they've been watering them for us. I, I thank you so much, dear neighbors, for taking care of my plants in this trying time. <laughs> it is very, very kind. Thank you. You don't know me. You're probably not listening, but my thoughts are very <laughs> thankful towards you as well. <laughs> oh, heck. <laughs> okay. So, in the continuing messages we've gotten about Dill, which is so great, uh, we have two more today. Hannah wrote, 
just finished listening to the dill episode. And since dill is arguably my number one favorite herb, I had Mm. to write in. I really enjoyed hearing about the varied witchy history of dill. It made me especially excited for the little row of fall dill seedlings that is popping up in one of my garden beds, as well as the volunteer dillettes springing up from Hmm. under this spring's patch. Aside from the obvious and delectable vegetable pairings, cucumber, tomatoes, potatoes, carrots, beets, dill goes great with just about any veggie in my book, I have a couple other favorite places for that burst of dill flavor. First, scrambled eggs. Of course, I enjoy a plain scramble or a cheesy one or even one with another herb or two. But if I am making scrambled eggs and don't have a bit of fresh dill around, I am always just a little sad that these scrambled eggs won't be quite as good as they could have been. (laughs) And secondly, popcorn. I know. It's not one I've seen anywhere except, well, my house and the place I learned it from. When I was growing up, a family friend would often make a big batch of popcorn for parties at her house. But instead of your classic toppings, she made it with butter, obviously, lemon pepper, dill, a touch of cumin, a little goes a long way, and parmesan. It is now the only way I make popcorn. Hmm. I don't always include the parmesan, but the first three ingredients are essential— Lemon pepper, I use one with salt for salt, tang and heat, dill for a touch of aromatic sweetness, and cumin for that bit of earthy funk. Hmm. It wakes up the whole palate, and I can't get enough. I hope you will give it a try. Yes. Ooh. (laughs) Yes. Yes. Oh, I I responded to this email, and I was like, (laughs) I'm in full-blown horror movie season. This sounds perfect. I got my popcorn needs. Put my dill in there and all the... This sounds so good to me. That does sound so good. (laughs) Yes. That I don't know why I've never thought about putting lemon pepper on popcorn. I know. I know. I'm ashamed of us, Lauren. Right? Honestly. I'm kind of like, we're from Atlanta. Lemon yeah, peppers right. everywhere. What kind of ATLians are we? (laughs) Not the good kind, I guess. And I love popcorn. And I... Right? What is going on with me? And I put cumin on everything. How have I never put that on popcorn either? Anyway. Hmm. Me too. Hmm. Also, multiple people wrote in about the eggs, dill and eggs. So. Oh, yeah? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Mm. Hmm. Uh, Bart wrote, I now absolutely adore dill and buy fresh dill at every opportunity at every time of the year and use it in cold dishes, hot dishes, marinades, you name it. But I remember exactly when I decided I wanted to try it. It's when Captain Kirk is making breakfast for his girlfriend in Star Trek Generations, and he shouts to Captain Picard for dill while he's making the eggs. I made my mom put dill on the shopping list there and then, added it to my eggs the next weekend, and fell in love. I still use fresh dill in frittatas, but in summer, my favorite use for dill is in fennel slaw, coleslaw, potato salad, or salmon salad. I use it to marinate whitefish all year round. It gives such a lovely freshness with some lemon, garlic, and olive oil. In winter, I love using it in roasted vegetable dishes. Uh, It goes really well with roasted cauliflower, red onions, and bramley apples. Bramley apples? I don't know. Anyway, uh, uh, and similarly with uh, roasted fennel with shallots and those same apples. I think my favorite dill roasted vegetable dish is roasted baby cucumbers with shallots, white wine vinegar, and dill. For all the roasted vegetable dishes, uh, the fresh dill goes in at the very end, after the food is out of the oven. Just fold it in and give it a minute to wilt, and it's ready to serve. But I think my most unusual use for dill is in sugar-free applesauce. 
uh, core and peel a nice tart cooking apple. I like that heck and whatever variety that was. Um, cut it into segments, season with salt and black pepper, and then roast in a medium oven until it goes to mush. Then take it out of the oven and mix in an ungodly amount of fresh dill and serve. The salt will enhance the natural sugars in the apples, and the dill will make the whole thing wonderfully fresh. Go super with some grilled chicken or turkey, some nice herby sausages, or some great black pudding. Oh, my mouth is watering, everybody. Oh, watering. Literally every single one of those things. Oh, my gosh. And I, my heart is very full and warm that you were like, I got to put dill in my eggs after watching Star Trek. Yeah, because of Captain Kirk. Thank you, Captain Kirk, for introducing it. me to dill, which I now use in literally everything. <laughs> That's fantastic. That's so cool. I oh, would do that too. I love this. Yes, it's all great. <laughs> I want to try all of these things. I'm just going to put dill in like everything from now on. That's the yeah. lesson I'm getting. Uh-huh. I'll try it. Why not? Why not? You listeners continue to inspire us. Uh, Absolutely. <laughs> thank you so much for writing. If you would like to write to us, you can. Our email is hello at saverpod.com. We're also on social media. You can find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at SaverPod, and we do hope to hear from you. Saver is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, you can visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Thanks, as always, to our super producers, Dylan Fagan and Andrew Howard. Thanks to you for listening, and we hope that lots more good things are coming your way. This episode is brought to you by Pronamel. Not all our favorite foods and drinks are BFFs with our teeth. Salad dressing, seltzers, and fruits can be enamel enemies. So if you eat or drink those things regularly, your enamel could be at risk. And once it's gone, it's gone. Pronamel Intensive Enamel Repair penetrates deep into the enamel surface, locking in vital minerals to repair acid-weakened enamel. And with new Pronamel Repair mouthwash, you can enhance that repair beyond just brushing. Pronamel is the number one dentist-recommended brand for acid erosion, so buy Pronamel Repair anywhere you buy toothpaste or mouthwash. Visit Pronamel.com.